Welcome to The Strategic Investor. Join us as we interview some of the world's most productive asset managers and uncover sophisticated and unique investment strategies in the markets. Here is your host, Charlie Wright. Hello and welcome to Strategic Investor Radio on octalkradio.net, where we bring you investment strategies you are not hearing elsewhere. Don't hesitate to contact us at info at strategicinvestorradio.com and go to our website to hear podcasts of all of our interviews and shows, strategicinvestorradio.com. Today's Friday, March 18, 2016. I'm Charlie Wright, and we're very pleased to welcome back John Cole Scott, Closed End Fund Advisors, their portfolio manager. He speaks to us from the headquarters in beautiful 73-degree weather, Richmond, Virginia. John, welcome back to Strategic Investor Radio. Thank you so much, Charlie. Glad to be here again. So, John, uh, for those who uh, may not remember from uh, all that we talked about about a year ago or perhaps longer, uh, give us a brief history of closed-end fund advisors. So our firm is a registered investment advisory firm that specializes in closed-end fund and business development company, or BDC, and we build portfolios of them for our internal clients. We also have a data research business that's grown even tremendously since we last spoke, Charlie, where we have fund profile pages for all BDCs and all closed-end funds at cefdata.com. We also do consulting work for hedge funds, for financial advisors, as well as for fund sponsors themselves, and we really try to be the crossroads of everything closed-end fund or business development company. There's 600 and change ticker symbols in our universe. They're fixed capital. They trade daily, and we try to just give people finer focus on the nuance of both the guts of what the managers are doing at the fund level as well as that closed-end fund wrapper that trades in the market and has that sentiment shift from people getting excited or fearful in a way that really doesn't happen in almost any situation for ETF and can't happen for an open-end fund because they trade at the same price every day. John, that was quite a mouthful. Uh, You guys have been doing this for how long? We just hit our 28th year two days ago on March 16th, so thank you for scheduling this on our anniversary, essentially. I've been with the firm. I'm in my 16th year. We bought it in distress from your side of the country in Santa Barbara, California. My father goes back to close-end funds to the late 60s. He still shows up at work most days and uh, manages his client assets and still gives me perspective on what was going on before I was actually in the capital markets because I am both young and old. I'm 38 years old, but my only job has been working at this firm. Well, it sounds like it's worked well for you here. So, John, very briefly uh, for our audience, many of them may not be familiar with closed-end funds and business development companies. Let's start with closed-end funds. A brief description. So there are 40 Act, which means a, a, a diversified investment regulated by FINRA, and they are trade um, on the stock exchange, like a listed fund. So a manager or a fund sponsor raises $500 million to buy the biggest category is muni bonds. Really boring. They go out there and they start buying muni bonds with the cash that they IPO like a regular stock IPO, though typically far less exciting. We typically see leverage for the bond funds, normal levels, 30 40%, varies in the market environment. And they buy these investments, like usually longer bonds, and then use leverage at lower cost to enhance the yield. So right now, there's a market price where you and I will meet in the market and buy and sell, but there's a net asset value every day like a regular open-end fund. And so many closed-end funds typically trade below net asset value. 
muni bonds are interesting. Right now, they're about a two discount on average, but a year ago, they were about an eight or nine discount. So the discounts have narrowed across most of those funds dramatically. And that's the close-end fund, or honestly, even the BDC nuance. You buy an asset class with an active manager with no redemption pressures, which means in an excited market, there's no new money to put in at high prices. In a panic market, there's no forced selling at low prices because investors want their money back. In each of those markets, discounts narrow or, or discounts go to premiums above net asset value. Or in the panic market, discounts widen or premiums drop down to discounts. And as you mentioned, I believe there are about 600 uh, closed-in funds? About 600, a little less than $300 billion in assets. And when I talk to college kids, that's a huge number. I talk to hedge funds that manage a billion dollars themselves. They go, gosh, that's tiny. We can take over this world. Like right now, on the difference in the net asset value for the closed-in fund world versus the market price is about a $10 billion swing, just to put it into huge numbers and that's an average discount right now of about, about 8%, 8-9%, depends on the day you're looking at the data. Okay, and you covered a couple of those, but, but briefly identify for us why people should consider closed, buying closed-end funds. Well, I, I'll say again, and then BDCs, I'll give you a quick update on those. They are a sector of the closed-end fund world by our definition, but they act a little bit more like a regular stock and how they file and how investors treat them, but they are structurally and regulatory the same type of thing. The difference being is they focus on typically venture loans to private or very small companies. To like 70% of the portfolio has to be that, and they get some special elections for cheaper leverage, for um, hedge fund-like management fees, which attracts good managers, because they're writing a private loan. So let's say your radio show takes off, and you need an $8 million loan to just nationwide syndicate the whole thing, you might go to one of these BDC lenders and get a loan for LIBOR plus seven, a first lien loan on your intellectual property and your brand name, and you pay it back over three or four years. And it's growth capital for your small U.S. business. So that's the benefit of the BDC. And the whole benefit is that fixed capital and the trade of, tradeability of it. So even the BDCs, which are a little bit more liquid, it's harder for the billion-dollar firms to buy a close-end fund or BDC. They can do it, but it typically takes patient and maybe good trading and maybe a network trader, which we work with sometimes. But if you have a million-dollar account and you're trying to do a $50,000 trade, you can take advantage of some huge disparity between market net asset value movements versus market price in a way a fund that needs to do a $25 million allocation, like it would take them months. And they can do it but it literally takes them months to get in and get out. So, John, uh, I think closed-end funds, if we look at those who offer closed-end funds, we're going to see a lot of names of mutual funds that we recognize. But that's not the case with BDCs. Who is it that does BDCs, and how many are there? Uh, there's about 52 total, 43 are more debt-focused, which is where I think there's more liquidity and more investor interest right now. And three of the groups have two funds. But typically, you've got a private equity firm or a venture capital firm or a bunch of guys that already do these venture loans for endowments, institutions, and their, um, the those big clients, and they open up a BDC as a public access point. So if you've got $25,000 and you want to put in venture debt, or if you're not an accredited investor, which means you're worth, I think it's $2 million now, though I'm not an expert on these rules, um, but a lot of money typically, you can put $25,000 in a liquid BDC with a manager that has three types of investments. So there's Apollo, 
there's Franklin Square, there's Aries Capital. Goldman Sachs um, launched a public version of their private BDC last year. We've got other players you may not have heard of but are solid in the space, like Gulub and TCPC and a whole bunch of names. That Prospect Capital is well-known, pretty liquid, third biggest in the sector. But unless you've dug your head into the neighborhood, you pr- either the private or the public business development company neighborhood, these are typically new sponsors. Uh, the only one that really has a name you would have heard of is BlackRock had a joint venture with BlackRock Kelso, and then they got rid of the Kelso part, are now just uh, the BlackRock BDC fund, and their office is in the building next to BlackRock up in New York City. So they share some um, resources, but they are in a separate building next door. Yeah, and we interviewed on this show uh, Triton Capital a while back, which is uh, offers a, uh, a BDC. Now tell us, uh, John, what kind of... Uh, people typically invest in BDCs, I understand, because of the yield that it generates. What's the range of yield that BDCs typically generate? So right, normally, you know, if we spoke a year, two years ago in a more normal BDC environment, I'd say 9 to 10 with some of the riskier high-yield ones going 10 to 12 and a couple of the ones with either great records. So they're, I mean, a BD, some BDCs trade 10 to 30% above their book value or they're at a premium. And the reason why it's, it's not always a bad thing is you can't get that investment in any other structure, so the right manager can often support a 20, 30 premium. So when you're looking at right now, if there's 20 BDCs that we have used regularly you know, as our kind of core universe, they have kind of an average yield of 13, an average discount of 16 when the sector often trades either a little bit below book on average or a little bit above. So there's about a 13-plus discount upside should we just get back to normal 10-year numbers for the sector. And are those true uh, yields through earnings, okay, or or are are they distributions like closed-end funds can be so they can be distributing distributing more than they're actually earning here? Well, as of the last, so we just got the earnings season, so another good job for you. So I've got pure year-end data from all of our BDCs that we track. And right now, the average earnings versus the average dividend policy for these 20 core funds we focus on is about 105%. There are a few that are a little bit below, but that's not always a bad thing. But again, 99% of the time, BDCs are passing through actual income. Now, the policy can change going up or down based on the environment, but you don't have the managed distribution policies that you're suggesting for traditional close-end funds where the yield is, I won't say made up, like there's an there's a healthcare fund that pays two percent of NAV a quarter, no matter what, and so it does it from earnings, it does it from income, it does it from realized gains, it'll do it from principal. It doesn't matter. The manager just believes he can grow the portfolio eight percent annualized on NAV over time, so he gives you this yield that feels real, but really it's just giving you a regular payout of long term gains. Right. John, hold it right there. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back, and we're going to continue talking about these BDCs, even though they're only uh, 50 or so out there. They're becoming much more popular and very, very interesting structures here. Again, we're talking with John Cole Scott, Closed-End Fund Advisors, Portfolio Managers out of uh, Richmond, Virginia, and you're listening to Strategic Investor Radio and OC Talk Radio, and we'll be right back. According to the consulting firm Strategic Capital Allocation Group, 
every decade since 1900 has experienced at least one bear market, and several have experienced as many as three. So how do we protect our principal from these declines without missing the gains when prices rise? At Strategic Investor Radio, we interview asset managers with unique strategies designed to both protect and grow your investments. Investing is not rocket science. It's rocket fuel if you know how to harness it. For podcasts of our interviews, please visit us at strategicinvestorradio.com. All right. Let's pick it back up again with Charlie and his guest. Thank you, Paul. Again, we're talking with John Cole Scott of Closed End Fund Advisors out of Richmond, Virginia. So, John, we're talking about BDC's business development companies, uh, the 50 or so that are available, and you have a core in, in your system of about 20. Who buys these, and how do they buy them? So pretty much um, people buy them, obviously, for the income. We're in a yield-strapped environment. We hear you can get a normal yield of 9 to 10. Currently, it's not hard to build a yield 11 to 13, depending on your appetite for what BDCs to be in. Well, first of all, if you have them, where are they? So one thing we did, because there was no place in the world to find a list, so we created a website off of our data platform, because as I told you earlier, we have our own data team, a little smaller than Morningstar, you know, but we do only cover 600 things. BDCUniverse.net, it'll give you the entire list of all BDCs. If you click the ticker symbol, it's got a red hyperlink, you'll go to a profile page off of our data that will give you more perspective on that fund. So that's how to find out which ones are available. The investors are typically retired people, but I'll tell you, it's very useful for those that like inefficiencies because these things... Like one of our favorite BDCs went to a 20 discount mid-earnings season, right before they... So earnings season started, but they're at a 20 discount, normally at a premium. Good manager, boring fund, symbols MRCC. Not saying you should buy it, but just using it as an example. Went to a 20 discount, had a very good earnings call. It's recovered the full discount in about two or weeks or so. So you've had 20% return in two weeks, which is big. But it's just because the earnings call was fine. Somebody must have been worried about it. We don't know who. You know, the traders were trying to figure it out. But that's an inefficiency that's available there. Now, there's other times where you have a fund at a small premium that's a bad earnings call. It could drop to a 10 discount. So it does go both directions. Um, but we think about it, investors applying it to their portfolio. We think you got to think about it as a diversification tool and a low correlation tool. Well, and with any kind of yield hard to find, uh, it's not hard to beat uh, what corporate uh, bonds are offering right now. And at uh, double-digit returns, that's, uh, uh, you know, it sounds like a great opportunity. But, but tell us now, ordinarily, when, when we're looking to buy into these kinds of investments, we're looking at risk being market risk. But in this particular situation with BDCs, it sounds like the risk really is economy risk because we're dealing with companies that are somewhat on the edge of viability, correct? Well, I'd say they're, honestly, there's big companies in the portfolio that are not very common. You've heard of them. But when looking over uh, the holdings, um, there's an aircraft leasing firm that has a $75 million loan that's using for growth capital. It, the loan is like LIBOR plus five, first lien loan. That's not expensive capital. So I wouldn't say it's there is some unsecured lending in the sector, but what's nice about it is uh, 75% of the loans on average are first or second lien which means there's some securitization of that loan. 
And so it's not as risky as unsecured loans or the, or the liquid high-yield bond market. What you need to think about is these are investment bankers writing these loans, but there's good bankers and there's bad bankers. A so part of it is manager analysis and figuring out which ones are good to shareholders because the, a BDC, if it chooses to, can actually benefit itself and hurt shareholders by doing things like raising capital below book, which is really bad 99% of the time for a BDC to do. You want them to raise capital above book because that actually increases your NAV a little bit. depends on where they do it. So I'd say the risk is not necessarily the company. I mean, the average BDC has 100 loans in the portfolio, and so that's, you know, some have 150, some have 50. So they are more diversified than a single company, but they're not as diversified as, like, you know, a, a muni bond fund, which might have 300 muni bonds in the portfolio, where many of them trade at least weekly. Um, so it's a different type of risk, and you're getting paid for that risk because you are getting a higher yield and you're getting that fixed capital so that you don't have to worry about these loans being called or due. Uh, because of market pressures. So, you know, I, I remember looking at uh, BDCs and actually using them uh, back around the, uh, the, the, the the financial crisis. And there were just like a half a dozen of them. And now you say there are over 50. Uh, why have they proliferated to such a degree in the past few years? So, great question. So we had a thing called the financial crisis, and a lot of banks after that didn't like doing small business lending. The BDC structure, though it's old, it came in 1980. Reagan was president when this thing was approved by Congress. And there were a couple, like you said, in the, in the 80s and 90s that really took till 2010 for this gap in the small business lending to be filled by these BDCs. So they've been coming public. There's about $37 billion of public BDC assets. There's a little less than $20 billion of private BDC assets, many of which we expect will eventually become public entities. And they're doing this lending to small businesses all over the U.S. Like it's in 49 states. I can't remember those. Maybe it's Wyoming. It's one of those western states without a BDC loan. But almost every state has it. And it's a way for smaller businesses, loans $10 million to $25 million is a common level to be fueled by venture capitalists. And yet the equity... We buy exposure to this equity as shareholders of the, of the BDC. So we buy the BDC at $10 a share, and if the asset value, let's say, is $11 a share, it's at a 10 discount, that BDC then borrows about 40% typically. So it basically puts $15 of BDC assets, and we're controlling it with $10 a market price, and we can buy it every day, and we can sell it every day. It's a liquid access to private venture debt vehicles. You know, that sounded great. Uh, I didn't catch 80% of it, but it does sound interesting and a reason to follow up with you uh, on that here. It is. And I'd say some of the key things are looking at the non-accruals, which is their word for defaults. Normal, normal levels are 1% to 2%. Right now the average is at just under 1%. That's an important data point to look at. And then looking at net asset value performance because you have to have that long-term to drive results. Like if it's not there, you're going to be in trouble. And then think about things like the manager being a good steward of capital and nice to shareholders. So, uh, John, give us that uh, website on BDCs again here. Yeah, so the main one is bdcuniverse.net, so it's .net.org. And then our full, we have some free fund profiles for all closed-end funds and BDCs at cefdata.com. 
You just type in a ticker symbol there, and you'll find out lots of information. And I'll say some, one of the benefits of BDC is a 43% correlation on a 10-year basis to the S&P 500 and a 15% correlation to muni bond funds. And it's a great way for 5 to 10% on the high end of an income portfolio to be diversified and to go after a way to get some income and yet not worry as much about duration risk because rates are probably going up in the next 10 years, I hope. And, and again, now these loans are typically what duration here? Um, the average maturity for the ones we follow is four years. Typically three to five years is the normal level, and they're usually paid back early because they want more capital or a better rate. Well, it sounds very compelling here, uh, John. You know, uh, one thing I've got to hand it to you, I was, uh, again, on uh, your website, uh, closedinfundadvisors.com, and it is full of uh, educational material there on closed-end funds, and then uh, I'm sure you followed that example for BDC website as well. Uh, And so anybody interested in any information about closed-end funds or BDCs uh, can find that and uh, know that they're getting some of the the best free education that they can on these. Appreciate that. Thank you, sir. So, uh, John, a question we always like to ask here is um, what keeps you awake at night? I remember that question from last year, and I believe, you know, one of the things I think I said last year was I'm worried about rates not rising. Well, they've risen a whole 25 basis points, and they might rise another 25 this year. We'll see what happens. I feel that's a risk that just the economy needs because that's a risk factor. And after that, I, I just I just think that I worry that people won't look long enough, either our clients or other investors, they focus sometimes too much on short-term results when you have to take the noise out, take the emotion out, and remember, why did you buy the investment? Is it still meeting your goal? So I worry about people just not letting me hold their hand through the rough patches because we've been through one in the last six months. And we've been most clients have been very happy with us, but a couple haven't. So I'd say... Rates don't need to go higher because that's a huge risk, I think, for the whole economy, and it impacts all of the leverage and all the bond-oriented things that we focus on. And, again, the political election in the fall, that's new this year. I'd say um, um, it's going to be entertaining and hopefully not scary the way things shake out this summer. <laughs> well, at the present time, it's, it's both of those things here. It is. Uh, and, uh, another, another topic for another day, maybe. Yeah. So, so John, uh, that, that raised another question that I just thought of. How long are these interest rates set for when they make these loans to these companies? So 75% of the loans are variable, so they typically reset every 90 days, like a traditional loan loan or floater fund. So you're really only looking at 25% of the average loan being fixed. And, again, um, the fixed fixed ones, again, the longest we see in any of these loans is five years. The average for most of these things are, um, right now it's four years. So it's not, uh, and, again, these managers, um, the loans are private. They, they typically they trade only by appointment through through attorneys, and it's so rare it's not even funny. Um, like it's a handful of loans, a quarter of that. So you don't really worry about the price of the loan. What you worry about when you write these loans as the manager and the shareholder is do they pay you back? Right. Yeah, that's that's the concern here. No question. So actually, rising interest rates are a good thing for for uh, BDCs. And, and yet, you would, the way the market reacted the last 12 months, you would think it's the inverse was true because they've had pressure and people thinking that that's a problem. This is my opinion here. I can't prove it with pure data. And the other thing is people thought that the energy problem was, a, was an issue for them, but the average BDC has 6% energy exposure. So the S, Russell 2000 has 6% energy exposure. So I, um, 
I just think that people sometimes react with with um, um, inefficiency and, 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 and emotion. And if you look at what's actually in the portfolio, uh, you can often find some great gems at ridiculous prices. And I found the same thing in 2008, uh, that uh, many of these BDCs dropped in price when, when there was no logical reason for that to happen. Because they were being paid back, those companies were strong, they were good, but they were kind of lumped together with the banks in the world of finance and the world of lending, I guess. And um, they, they, they declined in value when they really didn't need to. Absolutely, I agree. Uh, so, John, second question we'd like to ask is, what book would you recommend for our listeners? So the, the book that landed on my desk this week is from a friend, Simon Lack, who I mentioned his th- second book, Bonds Aren't Forever, which if you haven't read, please do. But his new book is called Wall Street Potholes. And it's a lot of things, his career at J.P. Morgan, finding things that he found investors didn't use properly or missold. And I, I will say, if you look on page 205, I am given a credit for being reasonably good in the closed-end fund world. So it's a little self-serving, but it's on my desk. It's a great book from an author who's covered three important topics that I think all investors have interest in. His first was on hedge funds, second on bonds, third one called Wall Street Potholes, a dear friend up in New Jersey. Great. Thank you very much. Wall Street Potholes, that is that, and that's a new book? A new book. I just got it at my desk today. I think it, I think it was launched last last uh, month. And, and again, check out page 205. It's a great page. All right. John, thanks so much. We'll, we'll allow you to, to you know, uh, have a good plug here. So final words for our listeners here, John. Final words, I'd say close-in funds. Think about discount reversion. Think about NAV total return. Dividends have to be reasonable. They can, you know, they aren't guaranteed like policies of, of uh, promises of bond payments. And patience and diligence. You can't be a day trader and usually win with closed-end funds. you got to look at the longer term, where the asset class is going. Is the manager good at his work? Did you get a good price? That's, that's like almost always common. Do it right. Do it simple. It's not a high-frequency trade. It's a seeing the, the, the trajectory of your investment. John, appreciate those words. Again, this is from John Cole Scott, Closed End Fund Advisors out of Richmond, Virginia. Thank John, thank you very much for being with us today, and good luck in uh, moving forward with a greater analysis in BDCs here. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Charlie. So you've been listening to Strategic Investor Radio on octalkradio.net, where we bring you investment strategies you're not hearing elsewhere. Again, contact us at info at strategicinvestorradio.com, and go to our website to hear podcasts of all of our interviews and shows, strategicinvestorradio.com. This is Charlie Wright wishing you all an enjoyable week and productive investing. You've been listening to The Strategic Investor, your source for compelling investment strategies from some of the most productive asset managers in the industry. For unique investment strategies, visit us at strategicinvestorradio.com. Investing is not rocket science.